past the hour of 6 o'clock. This is the Mark Riley Show. I am E. Glad to be with you on this Wednesday evening, as always. And uh, we have some phone action. The phones are back up. So uh, throughout the broadcast, you can give me a call at 888-874-4888. Or you can text me at 917-830-3023. They'll come up in my email if you text me. And I'll read your text or email, text, email, whatever, on the air. Uh, I'm a little sad to start the show with a rest in peace for somebody I knew very well. His name was Danny Schechter. He was called Danny Schechter, the news dissector. And he was an extraordinary human being, passed away from pancreatic cancer uh, at the age of 72. Danny did a lot of things journalistically, and he did them all well. He uh, was the producer of an award-winning public television series, South African Now. He uh, He worked for the ABC News Magazine 2020. And he also started uh, something called Global News Service, which did some yeoman work in informing and I think educating the public as well. Uh, So, uh, oh, wow. Uh, They're doing Danny Schechter programs for a year to honor him right here on PRN. Last time I saw Danny, was at a big Washington march a couple of years back, was organized by George Gresham from Local 1199 and my good friend, the late Bill Lynch. And Danny was just so, you know, there was a, like a whole little media area that most of these media outlets were progressive outlets. And Danny was just sort of kind of hanging out. And I was in the middle of doing a broadcast. I remember looking up and saying, wow, there's Danny Schachter. <laughs> so when we went to break, uh, because this was a commercial radio station, I went up and yeah, I said, Danny, what are you up to, man? How you been? Blah, blah, blah. Nothing. And he told me a few things. I said, come on, man. you got to come on the air with me. And Danny and I spent about 15, 20 minutes talking. And it was always a joy to talk to this man. Um, as I met, as Charlene Hunter Galt uh, actually aired and anchored a program uh, called Rights and Wrongs Human Rights Television that Danny produced as well. And, uh, you know, he, he was an extraordinary, extraordinary journalist, wrote 17 books. <laughs> and this one is uh, the one title which would sum it all up and would certainly make people aware. The more you watch, the less you know. News Wars, Submerged Hopes, Media Adventures. He also wrote a book called Madiba A to Z about Nelson Mandela. Just an incro- incredible incredible journalist, and he will be greatly, greatly missed. Now, how we do this program is as follows. Uh, I do top stories, about four or five top stories. Then we move to the lead story. And for those of you who are outside the New York area, the the lead story this week is a New York-centric story. Um, So, But the thing is, if you ever come to New York, this will have an effect on you because it's going to be about our subway system, which has seemingly gone to hell in a handbasket, even as last Sunday they raised the subway and bus fare, the 275 a throw. And I think the monthly has gone up to $116. It's just like some incredible increases. And there's no promise even of increased service, but we'll get to that. 
We'll get to that shortly. I want to start by talking about Congress and why this Congress, just like the last Congress, seems unable to get a whole heck of a lot done. And the interesting thing about this is that Republicans now control both houses of Congress, Senate and the House. But it looks like they're running into some problems trying to get anything done. New York Times says the process is already exposing cleavages. Cleavages? Within the Republican caucus between those who want to increase military spending, which they'll have to do through gimmickry, and those who want to reduce deficits. And uh, if they get to a budget, if they can agree on a budget, then they're going to go after Obamacare, of course. And that will be the point at which the president will have to whip out the old veto pen and say, oh, no, no, no. Now, here's some of the problems, according to the New York Times, with the new Congress. I emphasize the new Congress. One was the very well-publicized fight over the budget for Homeland Security that funded Homeland Security. They did one thing for a week, and then John Boehner seemingly caved in, and they got something done. I'll give him that. Now, uh, there was an agreement, and we'll get to this a little bit more de- in a little bit more detail shortly. Uh, John Boehner and Nancy Pelosi uh, hooked up uh, a, a fix to ensure that Medicaid reimbursements for doctors rise enough that doctors continue servicing seniors. Despite agreement from leaders of both parties, looks like there's a problem. And that's because Democrats are objecting to Medicare cuts. And, and I, I hope they keep that fight up, as a matter of fact. A law to pass human trafficking got held up by a dispute over an anti-abortion language. Anti-abortion language that's contained in the bill. Now, I, I don't know. They've also, by the way, held up, and, and this is where, at least for me, the Congress is getting to be useless as a third nostril. They should have been confirmed Loretta Lynch, President Obama's nominee for, the, for Attorney General. But they won't, because they go from thing to thing to issue to issue about immigration, about this, about that. It's ridiculous. So all this taken together, ladies and gentlemen, is about an inability to properly govern. That's all this is, an inability to properly govern. And I must say, uh, this program this evening will be full of instances and examples of politicians seemingly unable or unwilling, depending on how you look at it, to do the job they're paid for, whether it be on the New York state level, and we'll get to that in our lead, in our t- uh, lead story, I'm sorry, uh, or whether it's this. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But it is what it is. And this is why... People are so sick and tired of government. See, because they're sick and tired of Congress. You've got a hardcore group of people that, dare I say it, hate this president. And it wouldn't matter if the unemployment rate was at zero. They'd still find something to complain about him or complain uh, uh, that he's done. 
So we have this inability, this manifest inability. Now, when it comes to this health care thing, a bipartisan deal was struck. Nancy Pelosi and John Boehner can barely agree that the sky is blue, but they managed to get something done. The problem was Harry Reid decided he didn't like the bill. Why, you might ask? Well, because, as it turns out, there's language in it that appears to restrict a woman's right to choose. And it was also limits to an extension of a health insurance program for children. So uh, in this case, it seems as though we're talking about women and children last. <laughs> okay. Uh, and see what happens in Congress. And I hope I'm not talking out of school. But what happens in Congress all too often is that there's this whole, you know, well, we've got bipartisan agreement on something. And what that usually means is that people have given something up in order to get something. So they get this agreement, but they got to screw women and children in order to get it done. And I, I, you know, for me, it's like, why can't you get something that is, you know, that makes sense? Now, Harry Reid's a senator. This agreement was forged between Pelosi and Boehner, who were in the House. The uh, New York Times says that some of Nancy Pelosi's staff members are questioning Harry Reid's strategy. Nancy Pelosi says, quote, this is what we could get done in the House. I'm very proud of the product. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh... There's a provision in the House bill that they have a problem with, Democrats and abortion rights supporters. Although you might say supporters of a women's right to choose. And it it seems to me that you should be able at some point to get this stuff done without sticking it to two vulnerable populations here. First of all, the Congress seems to want to, at every turn, place some kind of restriction on abortion. Now, federal funding for abortion has been gone for a minute, apparently. They've been putting restrictions on the use of federal money for abortion since the 1970s. After he signed the Affordable Care Act in 2010, the president issued an executive order stating that money provided in the law to community health centers generally could not be used for abortion services, except in the case of rape or incest or when the life of the woman would be endangered. Now, of course, this was Obama's way of trying to win support of some people who are anti-abortion. Now, I, you know, some people are kind of perplexed by all this because the vice president of the National Association of Community Health Centers, which represents, by the way, 9,000 clinics across America, says, and I quote, I do not know of a single community health center that has performed a single abortion anytime, anywhere in my 45 years in the business of working with community health centers. Community health centers provide prenatal care, delivery services, and postpartum care to a half million women 
a year. The Republicans, for their part, say, well, you know, we may have to bite the bullet on this one. It's uh, due to get voted on in the House tomorrow. So we shall see how that turns out. George Zimmerman, you remember him? Some of you may. Man who killed Trayvon Martin and got away with it. He released a video. Why is George Zimmerman releasing videos? I, for me, he's now in the Rudy Giuliani school of irrelevance. You know, people that just pop up periodically, and because they pop up and say something, anything, then folks have to pay attention. He released a video, and he claims that President Obama stoked racial tension and used incendiary language after the shooting of Trayvon Martin. Now he's he's speaking up now because he says he's free to speak without fear of retaliation because federal, federal prosecutors didn't press civil rights charges against him last month. So, you know, uh, he says, uh, President Obama, this is a quote from Zimmerman. President Obama held his Rose Garden speech stating, if I had a son, he would look like Trayvon. Unfortunately for the president, I am also my parents' child, and my life matters as well. Well, George, you're alive. Trayvon Martin isn't. Is not. He says, that Obama pitted Americans against each other by making racially charged comments. Well, yo, man, if he didn't shoot the kid, he wouldn't have had to make any comment. I think it's partly because he just continues, continues to think that he has to justify what he did. Now, why? I do not know. You know, uh, I guess it would be sad, except it makes my blood boil. It absolutely makes my blood boil that George Zimmerman is going to blame Barack Obama for inflaming racial tensions when he's the one that shot an unarmed black kid. As we talk about that, we ought to talk about Anthony Hill, a guy who was shot dead when he was naked, naked. He didn't have a gun. He couldn't have, there was no place to put it. But he was in suburban Atlanta. His neighbors were alarmed. Look, people get alarmed by their neighbors all the time. Why Anthony Hill ended up dead on March 9th, they're still investigating. Witnesses said, that Anthony Hill approached a police officer, a white police officer, with his hands either up or at his sides, but that he did not heed the policeman's order to stop. The cop fired and killed him. Robert Olson is the name of the police officer, DeKalb County police officer. It's unbelievable that this continues to happen. I'm starting to think that there is a cohort of police. And by the way, this cohort does not have to be 
entirely of white cops. But there's a cohort of the police department, or police departments across America, to be more accurate, that seems to say or imply that any black man that walks up on them, armed or not, constitutes a threat that justifies the use of deadly force. That's what George Zimmerman got away with. I had to use deadly force. Trayvon Martin was getting ready to kick my behind. And this, I mean, this is a guy, okay, he had some, he had some problems. He had some mental health problems. And we see that, you know, in some cases, not all, but in some, the way to deal with a mentally ill black man is shoot him. And by the way, Anthony Hill, in an ironic twist, posted on Twitter on December 24th, don't reflexively condemn all police officers. So he wasn't anti-cop, but it didn't matter. Apparently he had bipolar disorder. Served his country, came back from Afghanistan with bipolar disorder. But that's not a reason to kill him. His family believes that, you know, stripping down and walking around naked, that was a byproduct or a symptom of his illness. See, because maybe it's me. Maybe I'm the one that's nuts. But it would seem to me if somebody's walking around naked and is not holding a weapon, which there's no evidence to say that this man was holding any weapon whatsoever, the solution would not just have been to call the police, but to call some mental health professionals to see what's wrong with him. Before you shoot him, his father, also named Anthony Hill, asks, why would you go directly to deadly force for someone who clearly does not have a weapon? I'm going to repeat that. Why would you go directly to deadly force for someone who clearly does not have a weapon? Why do you do that? My gut tells me it's fear. It's got to be fear. Just like when that cop in Brownsville was going through a, 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 a housing project building, it was dark. And he pulled out his gun. The gun went off and killed somebody. But what was the reflex that made him pull out the gun in the first place? Fear. Now, this is not something, by the way, that I think you can fix by, you know, ordering sensitivity training for cops. I, I don't think that's really the issue here. Maybe the issue is if you're scared of black people, you shouldn't be a cop. You're scared of any people, Latinos, whites, whomever. You shouldn't be a cop. Because it's happening too often. Way, way, way too often. I hope there's some justice done here. But I'm not, uh, not holding out a great deal of optimism. That's just me. Just not holding out a great deal of optimism. Our next two stories are about transportation. Our lead story is about the subways, but this story is about airfares. Now, I know not not all of y'all fly, but for those who do, 
or for those who are contemplating taking a, a flight somewhere, this is an important issue. You may have noticed, even though today apparently oil stock prices were on their way up a little bit, or oil prices were on their way up, but you may have noticed that they've dropped quite a bit over the last few months. Those of you who buy gasoline for your cars, you know this already, because prices have dropped like a stone. But guess what has not dropped like a stone? Airfares. Now, two years ago, one of the top airline trade organizations said the industry was hyper-competitive and declared, quote, airfare remains a bargain. Now, not so much. Now, when they said this two years ago, they were looking at the implications of mergers between United, um, I'm sorry, between American and U.S. Airways and, and two years after United and Continental merged. Now, according to the New York Times, not according to me, far from hyper-competitive, the airline industry is looking, uh, increasingly looking like an uncompetitive oligopoly. Over the last year, oil prices dropped more than 50%. But the airfares are not dropping. Not even by a little bit, in fact. And it looks like all this merger mania between the airlines, which leaves us with four, Delta, United, Southwest, and American U.S. Airways, and they don't deliberately compete on some routes across this country. What happens is the net result is the prices for oil, which, by the way, that's what they use for jet fuel, they're going down, but airfares aren't going down. Now, you know, the industry will tell you, well... You know, they were locked into paying higher prices because they hedged contracts for the oil. They, uh, they had hedge contracts that they entered into last year. And they say they're investing heavily, American Airlines, $2 billion in its fleet. Delta's upgrading. <coughs> but in a marketplace that would be competitive, and by the way, the airline industry is not the only one. You can look at terrestrial radio and see some of the same economics of scale, as it were. But, you know, you'd think maybe an airline, maybe even two, would drop their prices so they could increase their market share. But no! They're keeping the airfares high. And he said, uh, he didn't, let me be clear about who said this, uh, Vinay Bashkara, he's an industry analyst, an industry analyst. He said, we are unquestionably living with an air travel oligopoly. Remember, this is the same management group that instead of allowing passengers to reap a modest reduction in fares, responded to the FAA's inability to collect taxes in, in mid-2011 by gleefully raising base fares to where out of, total out-of-pocket costs were exactly the same, earning a windfall of $28.5 million per day. Per day. 
And politicians are speaking out. Chuck Schumer is speaking out. I'm sure it was on a Sunday. <laughs> it's usually when he decides. I'm sorry, it's a bad thing to say. But it's very, very interesting. This would be called, I guess, on Wall Street, profit-taking. Because ain't none of these people now. There are only four, four major airlines in the country. None of them come out broke at the end of the year. I guarantee you that. Not unless oil prices double or triple anytime soon. And, I mean, it's a very real question. Why hasn't the drop in oil prices been passed along the savings that the airlines are reaping? Why isn't it passed on to consumers? It's interesting to me that these airlines, you know, you could very easily, given that there's only four of them left, four big boys left, let's say these people are like price fixing or something. And uh, by the way, it's not just the question of airfares. One of the things I think that, that has really gotten to certainly gotten to me as a uh, an infrequent traveler is the very simple fact that they nickel and dime you to death on everything. You want to put a bag, carry a bag, uh, uh, you want to check luggage? 25 bucks, 50 bucks. Usually 50 bucks round trip minimum for one bag. Used to be free. Want something besides some uh, honey roasted peanuts on a flight? That'll cost you two. A, a meal? And by the way, the meals haven't gotten that much better on airlines. I don't know how many of you all fly, but the meals haven't gotten that much better. The difference is they charge you nine bucks. You know, I mean, they, they, they gussy up. <laughs> they gussy up what it is they're serving. You know, arugula. Oju, all of that stuff. They put all of those fancy names on the food. It's a sandwich, okay? Or, you know, it's a it's a salad. But they still charge you more. So they're making out like freaking bandits, these air, air uh, airlines. And who, of course, is getting screwed? Who else? Who else? but the consumer. And, you know, uh, the, the problem is people who fly are not going to jump on trains as a protest against airfare staying the same or increasing while the cost of fuel is dropping. It, it's too abstract a concept. Plus, it takes too long to travel any place by train, and America's let its uh, rail system go to hell in a handbasket. But it's just another way for the rich to get richer, for people to get more and more money. Jason, I want to take a real quick break, and then we're going to come back and discuss our lead story also about transportation. The decline and fall of the once mighty New York City subway system is 28 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. You can give us a call at 888 4888 888 874 4888 or 917 
You could, and this is if you want to text me, it'll come out in my email, 917-830-3023. 917-830-3023 for a text, or you can call. We got phones, y'all. 888-874-4888. Back in a flash. This is the Mark Riley Show. I'm Mark Riley. Doesn't make that much difference, but you, know, you have to say your name every now and then. And our number again, 888-874-4888. Or you can text me at 917-830-3023. Harriet from Bayside is on the line. Harriet, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing okay. Boy, did I miss talking to you. Well, I miss talking to you too. I'm glad we got the. You got to give Jason and all the folks in, in, in at PRN all the credit because they took a really hard hit, but they came back up and got things rolling. That's what I like to hear. All right, and one thing I want to say: very sad. Rest in peace, seven Sassoon children. Oh yes, yes, for sure. The children who died. Uh, some people would call it religious fanaticism. I would just say they should have had a smoke alarm on each floor. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. A and smoke alarm would have been nice. Yeah. That was so sad. Very true. Very, the very. Other, I agree 100%. The other thing I wanted to talk about is something I'm happy about. I like the new, uh... Uh, state assembly leader. Oh, Carl Hasty. Yeah, he seems to have as much fight in him as uh, Shelley Silver had. But you know, here's the problem, Harriet. Yeah. Um, it's not so much the individual players in Albany. Not, not to me, anyway. Um, the problem is the process. It's the same three guys, although now, obviously, it's not Shelley anymore. It's going to be Carl Hasty, Governor Cuomo, and Dean Skelos. The three of them are going to get in the room, and they're going to figure out how New Yorkers are going to live till next year. Period. Uh-huh. Now, I don't have a problem with that. No? I don't have a problem with three men in a room. I, I, for me, one problem is there's no women. Uh, well, that's the fault of the electorate. The electorate doesn't elect a speaker. 
the electorate has to elect, uh, or they have to be more powerful women. But the ones they have now, they're okay. Dean Skelos is a Republican, and Republicans like it. I don't like him because I'm not a Republican. <laughs> I understand. But, um, I mean, look, it's not, see, again, Harriet, it's not the personalities to me. Yeah. What I was afraid of is because Hasty is new and Cuomo is the way he is, mm-hmm. that he was just going to roll over and let them pass that new education thing that uh, Cuomo wants. And Hasty said nothing doing. And oh, Hasty's pushing me. Remember, Hasty's a former school teacher, you know. All right. And, um, I mean, he fought this, and it's not in the budget anymore. What do you oh, do with so the bully? One, I, I mean, I give, him cre- I give him all the credit in the world for that because it, it may have been, in, in the old days, you know, Shelley says to Cuomo, okay, well, I'll give you this in exchange for this. And that may have happened here. But, yes. you know, the, part of the problem for me, Harriet, is that there's no, like, real daylight in any of this. Um, yeah, but you can use your imagination and see what happens. Now, as far as the Essex is concerned, I think it was just a colossal witch hunt. What, you mean the one that got Shelley indicted? Yes. Colossal witch hunt. And if I'm going to be... um there, the same thing with Michael Grimm. Oh, okay. All right, yeah. Well, bipartisan. That's all. Uh, that's all <laughs> political witch hunting. But now, well, actually, you know, in both cases, it was the feds that went after these guys. It wasn't, yeah. wasn't state and local people. All right. Uh, who gave the feds that idea? What do you mean? The idea that they didn't dream it. To investigate it, who was behind it? I wonder. Well, I mean, with, with Shelley Silver, there have been questions for a very long time. Part of this has to do with the fact that that you know lawmakers in Albany don't really have to tell you all that yeah. much about their outside income. Which, all right, either you have that, have it that way, or you raise their salaries and say that they're full-time and they have no outside they income. They have no outside income. I, I don't get a sense, Harriet, that they're really of a mind to do either one at this point. First of all, let uh, them leave it alone. state legislators get about eighty grand a year. doesn't sound Which, like much, but it's among the high, they're among the highest-paid legislators in America. All right, but the cost of living in New York is very high, and they have to maintain two residences. They have to live in Albany. They have to be in Albany. They don't have they to have live to there. Well, they have to stay there. They can't yeah, they get, they get the per diems for the hotel. Well, you know, they still, whatever they get, it's not enough because you also, some would prefer to bring their families up there. Well, see, Harriet, that's really the crux of the problem. Whatever they're yes. getting isn't enough. And yes. some of them, not all of them, but some of them react to that by yes. figuring out questionable ways to make more. And um, all kinds of political witch hunting, which I remember there was, um, 
Rostenkowski. They did the same thing to and him. And Rostenkowski, yeah, he was from Illinois. Yeah. And he was good at what he did. That has nothing to do with whether or not they get you. <laughs> Believe me. I know. If you do something that's good. questionable, they're going to get you. Yeah, I think it's because it's too good. And we have a very overly zealous um, U.S. attorney, Preet Bharara, very overly zealous. You know who he reminds me of, right? Rudy Giuliani. Ken Starr. Oh, Ken Starr. Oh, that yeah. was the, uh, what was that, Whitewater? Yeah, Whitewater that ended up being more. Or less, <laughs> depending. Listen, I got to run, Harriet, but thanks a lot okay. for calling, all right? Great to talk okay. to you, as always. Yeah, on YouTube. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. Um, I want to get to this story. And again, you know, there are other people that want to call. We got phones. You just heard Harriet. 888-874-4888 is our number. Or you can text me. 917-830-3023. And if I have text messages that come up on my email, I will read them on the broadcast. Uh, it's funny. Uh, actually, it's not funny. A couple of weeks ago, and actually this was when I was uh, uh, coming uptown to do this show at the studios on Broadway and 83rd Street. And I changed trains at 59th Street. Took the A train up to 59th. Changed for the number one, which goes up to uh, 86th Street, which is is routine. No big thing. Uh, I got tied up downtown, so I was running a little behind schedule. So I get to the train station at 59th Street. And it was, I mean, not just packed, uber packed. Okay. (laughs) It was just after 5 o'clock. Uh, and I'm thinking, like, wow, this is, this is unusual. Maybe there have been some backups or something. I stood there and watched, because I'm not a person who's going to sandwich myself on a train. I, it's just, I'm too old for that. I used to do that when I was a kid. When I was young, I would just climb between the cars and ride between the cars, although they say that's a lot more dangerous than it used to be. Um, but I, I looked at this, and, I mean, people were literally turning their backs on a wall of folks at a door and just pushing their way into the train. And this happened on three consecutive trains. Three. There was just no room. Finally got a little bit of, you know, pity of a dog flea whisker of a space on the fourth train. Now, okay, you know, it happens. Ridership is up. But they just raised the subway and bus fare. Uh, monthly pass, $116.50. It used to be 112 And a decade, it goes like 81 bucks. Single rides, 275 The problem is, it seems like, you know, if you ever listen to traffic reports or if you ever hear any, any mass transit updates, it seems like, there are more and more delays, and this overcrowded platform thing is getting to be ridiculous. Now, I am a firm believer in the notion that overcrowded platforms are a function of the number of trains they run per hour, which, by the way, they very quietly 
cut back on a few years ago. Um, the the uh, amount of time or the distance between trains on any track, that's called headways. Okay, and there was a time in New York, uh, I'm old enough to remember, when there were like two-minute headways during the rush hour on virtually every line in the system. And the trains weren't that crowded then. Ridership has gone up like crazy. Uh, But the other indicators of the health of the New York City subway system, they're not good. Now, this weekend, here are the number of trains that are not running their regular routes. The one train, the four train, the five train, the six train, the seven train, the A train, the C train, the E train, the N train, the Q train, the F train, the D train, and the S, which I assume is the uh, Times Square shuttle. Now, on time performance, the MTA, the MTA, not me, the MTA says on time performance is at 74%. So three out of every four trains are on time. Also means one out of every four trains isn't. They say they'd like to be at 92%. Why aren't they at 92%? You're getting more money. Y'all can't figure that out. Now, what they say, as far as this new increase is concerned, is that it's for salaries for employees. Uh, Okay. Which means essentially that they're not going to use a dime of this money to make the subways better for the millions of people every day who use them. And that number, by the way, is going up. And the MTA, in the most bizarre and twisted logic I think I've ever heard of, makes it sound as though the increased ridership and the troubles that come with it that this is a testament to the good job the MTA is doing. Subway ridership keeps rising. And late last year started hitting $6 million on our busiest days. This is an incredible achievement after decades of deferred investment that left the subway system near collapse in the 1970s and 1980s. That was 30 years ago. And it was true then. But why does it have to be true now? So, what... Adam Lisberg, who I I know his work, he used to work in, I think, for the Daily News, one of the newspapers. What he's essentially saying is that bad service is a function of increased ridership, and increased ridership is a testament to the great job the MTA is doing. What am I missing here, ladies and gentlemen? And I'm sorry to go on about this for people who are not in New York City, and I know a lot of you who are listening are not in the city of New York. But this is symptomatic of something that I think every people, every group of people in cities and towns across this country ought to examine and ought to be up in arms about. And that is that this kind of woeful service becomes the new normal after a while. See, because people forget you got to pay more to ride the train. They'll forget And the people that run the NTA know they're going to forget. And it is just like the gridlock that you have in Washington in the Congress. It is a failure 
of will on the part of politicians that the subway system is not better. You know, they have an MTA board that votes on fare increases. I can remember one person over the last decade that voted, that was on that board, that voted against a fare increase. His name is Norman Seabrook. I know him well. I used to work for him. He voted no, and then he ended up getting booted off the board. It's like everybody get in line. And, you know, people, if you go in the subway, especially during rush hour, you will hear horror stories from people. Uh, you know, and, and now that we've got social media, of course, they got some place to vent. Never mind, they can't even get the stinking, uh, uh, the train, you know, the time boards up, the boards that tell you when the next train's coming. They can't even do that on more than the lines that are on now. <laughs> and the current budget doesn't have any money to put them on anymore. The C train, according to this article in the New York Post, yes, God help me, I'm quoting the New York Post. Uh, the C train got their last new cars during the 1964 World's Fair. Now, the problem with that is there was no C train during the 1964 World's, World's Fair. It's called the K line or the KK line back then. But my good friend Gene Rushenoff, who knows, he works for the Strap Hangers campaign. He summed it up in terms of the increase and the lack of service. It stinks. It's not good enough. As for their statistics, which says, by the way, <clears throat> the mean distance between repairs on the subway line or a subway car, the amount of miles the train can go without breaking down. They'd like to be at 175,000 miles. Right now, they're at 141,000 miles. Gene Rushenoff says, quote, there are lies, damn lies, and transit authority stats. Between subways and buses, New Yorkers take 8 million trips a day. The overcrowding that is now being experienced, and I knew I wasn't crazy. This overcrowding hasn't been experienced since the late 1940s. The Lexington Avenue line, which, of course, is the only line on the east side because they can't get their act together to finish the 2nd Avenue subway, carries 30% of daily riders. The Post reported last December alone, 15,000 delays due to overcrowding, 113% higher than December a year before. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. Now, I don't want to pile more bad news. I was talking about the 2nd Avenue subway. And by the way, there were plans on, on, on the drawing boards to build that subway in the early 1920s. That's right, 1920s. Now they may stop construction. Now, the New York Post says the only person who can fix this is Governor Cuomo. You know what? I don't care who is the only person or persons that can fix this. It needs to be fixed. It's a disgrace. 
It is an absolute disgrace. And it's not just limited to the subway system. All over the tri-state metropolitan area, all over this area, you will see masses of delays and messes and detours and this and that and the other, all caused by a lack of maintenance, by a lack of due diligence. And beyond the ineptitude of the MTA or whatever other companies may be charged with fixing our decaying infrastructure, which, of course, nobody in Congress wants to spend a dime on, at least no Republicans. They don't want to spend a dime on any of this. New York City subway could run into the Hudson River. They don't care. They really don't. But politicians should not allow deferred maintenance. I don't care if it was in the 1870s. They shouldn't allow it because this is the net result. Subways that are overcrowded, roads that go through detours like you would not believe, traffic backups because you gotta got to stop traffic so there's only one lane. So cars going in one direction go through, the other cars sit back and wait, and then they have to change it and allow them, allow the ones that have been sitting for five minutes to go in the opposite direction. All of this stuff is happening, and as Bob Marley once very sagely said, we stand aside and look. So if Governor Cuomo was the person to fix it, then fix it. Now, one thing that would fix it is an infusion of cash. Apparently, the MTA has a, what, $13 billion? No. $15 $15 billion uh, uh, is what they need to keep maintain the status quo. Uh, you know, they need this money. And given, you know, uh, I always laughed when I heard Republicans in Congress talking about the 1%, the millionaires and billionaires, as the job creators. You know what the job creator is and has been in New York City for the last hundred odd years? The subway system is the job creator. This city would strangle itself. There would be very little work if there weren't a subway. That's the jobs creator. Nobody wants to call it that. And certainly nobody treats it like it's a jobs creator. Ladies and gentlemen, somebody needs to start. Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz, Ted Cruz. Headline in the New York Times. Ted Cruz becomes first major candidate to announce presidential bid. Now, I would quibble and ask the question, why is he major? (laughs) Okay. All right, he wants to run for president. He's got the right. He's an American citizen. I got no problem. Oh, no, actually, he was born in Canada. I guess that means uh, maybe he should have to, uh, let me see, should he have to perhaps come up with a few coins to get his birth certificate and show it to the world to show that he's qualified like he hollered and screamed about Barack Obama? I'm just saying. Whoopi Goldberg said it. I'm not taking credit for it. But he said he's going to run for president. 
I would have liked it if he said the first Republican candidate, which they said in the first paragraph of this New York Times story. He went to Liberty University, a Christian school down in Virginia. And Cruz said, quote, God's blessing has been on America from the very beginning of this nation. And I believe God isn't done with America yet. Uh, very interesting. Now, you know, there's a part of me, I hate to say this, but there's a part of me that hopes Ted Cruz gets the Republican nomination for president. I really do. Because whoever would run as a Democrat would then make short work, I believe, of Ted Cruz. He is a, as far as I'm concerned, mad dog Tea Party person. And, uh, you know, any, any Christian that wears their religion on their sleeve, I'm very suspicious of. And I can say that because I went to church last Sunday. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Uh, th- th- there's really no need. Uh, and, and I have no doubt that, you know, he had worked two jobs and took out $100,000 in student loans and just paid them off and all the rest of that. He got student loans? I wonder what his voting record is on that, by the way. Um... People are cautious about what shot he has. I'm not sure most Republicans think he's got a serious shot, but it's interesting. It's interesting. The chairman of the Republican Party in Iowa, which, of course, has the first caucuses. Otherwise, people wouldn't pay any attention to Iowa, except for my good friend John Dominey lives out there. And, uh, you know, a couple of their basketball teams were in the NC2A tournament. Here's what Jeff Kaufman, chair of the Republican Party in Iowa, said about Cruz's speech. Quote, it's clear he wants to run as the Christian evangelical candidate and the liberty candidate in both senses of liberty, which will definitely hold appeal for some Iowa voters. How he tries to position and separate himself from other Republicans trying to appeal to the same group of Iowans, that will be interesting to watch. He, He got a head start on this. And by the way, uh, Chris Christie, you know, the governor of Jersey crossed the river over here. Uh, He says, ah, it's not disrupting my timetable one bit, which was his way of trying to get back in the news. Interesting, interesting. We got a couple of minutes left. And uh, I just wanted to run a couple of stories real quick. Gun thieves in Texas made off with 45 guns, including assault rifles, when they broke into a collector's home. Guy was apparently on a trip to Mexico. The robbers invaded his house. They swiped the weapons, a thousand rounds of ammo, jewelry, and a coin collection. Total haul of twenty. I'm sorry, two hundred thousand dollars. My concern is for the guns and the ammo, because my question would be, what happens if some of those weapons stolen from this Texas guy are used in crimes? It's not outside the realm of possibility that they could be used in crimes in New York, in California. In Utah, wherever. Uh, The people who stole this, I'd be willing to bet, didn't steal all these guns to put them up in a collector's case like this guy did. They're going to move them. And what happens when they, and they're not going to move them on a legal market either. They're going to sell them to whoever's got the money. It's just something to think about. Why are New Yorkers still so enamored of the 212 area code 
So the story in the New York Times says Manhattan area codes multiply, multiply, but the original 212 is still coveted. Do people know that there are actually folks who will, for a price, get you a 212 area code? I guess they hoard them or something. There's one where they actually forward it to, through this guy's phone system. And the people that subscribe to his service get the 212 area code, but it comes through his telepathy, I guess, telepathy, whatever. It's a status symbol. Why is it a status symbol? Why? Well, first of all, because it's Manhattan. And, and, you know, people love to act as though it's the most important thing in the world to be in Manhattan. I, I don't know. I mean... I live in Jersey, but I have a 917 cell area code, which most people who have any sense knows that's a New York area code. Who cares? I don't care. Although I do like to have some tenuous connection to, to the greatest city in the world. I was talking a minute ago about Ted Cruz. I'm almost done, party people. You hear, you know, he was one of the people who wants to dismantle, blow up, obliterate Obamacare, right? Well, he's going to use the program to obtain health insurance coverage. Quote, we will presumably go on the exchange and sign up for health care, and we're in the process of transitioning over to do that. Uh, that's because his wife is taking an unpaid leave of absence from her job at Goldman Sachs, and she loses her health care. And Cruz had been receiving coverage under his wife's employee coverage. I guess she must have a really good deal, because <laughs> I thought all of those guys in Congress made out like bandits anyway. But uh, Ted Cruz... The scourge of Obamacare now wants to utilize Obamacare. And, and trust me, he has what he thinks is a logical reason for this, okay? Because I figure he can sign up for something, whatever he wants. But he, he has no problem with saving a few dollars, even if it's in a program that he says he detests. It's time for us to get out of here. It's just about 7 o'clock. My thanks to Jason Taubenfeld and the whole crew at prn.fm. Keep listening for all the fantastic programming. We join you again next Wednesday, live, 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time for the Mark Riley Show. My name is Mark Riley. Have yourselves a great evening and a better week ahead.